You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, uh, we're starting a new series on disruptions, and uh, it's a summer series. And so all summer, you and I are going to have the opportunity to wrestle with the question, how do we face disruptions? How do we do that? How do, we, how do I handle that? I mean, what, like, what's my particular approach to disruptions? And also, how should we? handle disruptions? Does Jesus Christ give us any help with the things that sometimes trouble us because they disrupt our lives? Now, not long ago, I was studying late at night in a coffee shop. I oftentimes uh, do that. I'm kind of hunkered down. I I got a lot of music and a hot drink in front of me, and I'm cranking away on some work, and uh, that's kind of how I write these days. Um, but that particular day, there was a, a man who sat next to me who introduced himself as Tony, and Tony didn't seem to get why I was in the coffee shop. Um, you know, I, I'm a friendly person, and I really like it when people are friendly with me. I love it when I'm in a coffee shop and someone says, hey, there's George, and come, you come and say hi, so please do that. But uh, Tony was doing a little bit more than that. He was really moving in on my space and recharacterizing uh, my study time. And he wasn't picking up on the nonverbal cues, you know, that you try. You know, first of all, your answers get shorter and shorter, and then pretty soon you don't answer. You're just kind of listening, you know. And I'm, I'm getting a lot of good stuff from him, stuff about how expensive college uh, tuition is these days and uh, something about the Middle East and then a joke that he'd found in a cartoon. And it wasn't so much Tony. It's just that, like, and I, I enjoyed talking with him, but it's just that the interruptions kind of came on five-minute intervals. So it was like engagement with Tony and then back to my work. And then, oh, here's another thing. And so after the not responding, you know, you go with uh, just kind of not even looking. And then after a while, you go with the nuclear option, which is, we all know, right, the headphones. And I put the headphones on. That still wasn't working with Tony. But as I thought about it afterwards, I finally got through that. I outlasted him. I'm very stubborn. That's another thing about me. But um, I kind of wish I'd handled that a little bit differently because I think even though, yeah, I had some work to do and it was, you know, kind of intense for me. I also had a man right next to me. Uh, and I pray that I could uh, get to know people with whom I can show the love of Jesus. And I wonder if maybe that disruption could have, could have been handled a little bit better by me. Um, so I'm, I want to learn with you about how to face disruptions as followers of Jesus Christ. And sometimes the disruptions are really small. You know, like the conversation conversations with Tony. Uh, sometimes they're not small, though. Sometimes they're really big. Sometimes a disruption is good. It's a good thing. Like you got pregnant. You know, and it's a wonderful thing. Or you, you graduated and you're, you're moving to another school or um, maybe to work out of, out of college or graduate school. Now you're getting to apply the thing you trained for. It's disruptive, but it's a good disruption. Um, maybe you moved. I mean, maybe you're even moving here. I would say moving to Seattle is a pretty darn good disrupt, disruption in your life. And maybe that's your work this summer. Uh, maybe you have to move away from Seattle. That could be good if you're going for a good reason, family or work or something you're excited about. So those are good disruptions. But sometimes disruptions are really hard. I mean, that's when you tend to really notice them, when they're really like bad, unwelcome dis- disruptions. Like, for example, you get pregnant. Um, okay, that can be bad. Or you miss your flight, and you're stranded somewhere for a long time. Or you lose your funding. A scholarship or grant doesn't come through. Uh, you lose a friend or relationship. You know, someone moves away. There's a broken relationship. Or you get a diagnosis. Okay, we all know that's a really bad uh, disruption in our lives. So they're good, they're bad, they're big, they're small. But what is a disruption? What's the concept we're talking about? It's basically, it's a shift from a familiar world to an unfamiliar world caused by a particular event. 
So it's something, some particular event that moves you from the world you knew in which you you didn't love it, but you knew how to work, you you knew the rules, how to play the game. All of a sudden, boom, now you're in a different world where you don't necessarily know the rules. You don't necessarily know how to play the game. You don't feel like you're up for it. Okay, that's, uh, that's what we're talking about when we talk about disruptions. The reason we're focusing on disruptions is because we're going to study the Gospel of Mark this summer. It's a great gospel, shortest gospel. And uh, the Gospel of Action really clips along. It's very dynamic, right to the point, Mark. But here's what's interesting about Mark. He knows something about disruptions. He does. because the way he, Okay, the, first of all, just to back up, a gospel is a biography of Jesus. There are four of them in the New Testament. And, and, and Mark writes one of those biographies, basically telling who Jesus is and what he did. And the, but the way Mark tells that story is very distinct. He uses sandwich stories. Uh, that is a story inside a story. That's what we mean by a sandwich story. The fancy language for that is intercalation. And I know some of you chemists use that phrase about an interlacing of things together. Uh, and so what, what, what Mark does is he says, let me tell you a story. And so he'll launch into the story and he'll write the story. And then all of a sudden he says, nah, let me tell you another story right in the middle. And, uh, and then he tells you that story. And then he says, oh, wait a minute, but I was, tell- I was telling you a story, wasn't I? It's like, you know, your grandmother who sort of can't keep track. He's like, he's not tracking. You know, what's the story here? Well, it's actually a story inside of a story. He goes back and he resumes. So we say it's the, the, the first story is story A. And then this, the middle story that disrupts story A is story B. And then we get back to story A. And we see how that original story ends. And it's this kind of interesting juxtaposition that makes us raise these questions. Mark, why do you do this? This is the primary way he tells the story of Jesus. Nine times at least. And you might be able to find others. He does these disruptions, these sandwich stories. And I think the reason is that Mark knows that you and I are preoccupied with our stories. You know, you got a story today, you got a story this month, you got a story this summer. You might like think of your whole life as a story. It's got a beginning, middle, and the end, and it's, like, it's a compelling story. We like to read our stories sometimes. Um, but Mark knows is that there's a bigger story than your story. It's the story of Jesus. It's, it's the story. And what happens is that the story of Jesus keeps breaking into our stories, keeps disrupting our stories. And it might just be, Mark is suggesting, that it's in the disruption of our stories, that we can meet Jesus. It might just be that the good and the bad disruptions are special opportunities to see Jesus, that he reveals himself uniquely in the disruptions of our lives. So you get it? That's the, that's the concept. That's what Mark's working with, and that's what we're going to look at. So we're going to look at these stories. And um, our first one is in Mark chapter 3. We already read the passage here, this dramatic a reading earlier, but I think it would be helpful if you opened up and looked at your Bible, and if you brought one up, uh, open up to Mark chapter 3, verse 19b to 35. Those are both of the stories together. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, grab the, the black book in front of you there. That's the, that's the Pew Bible. And open to page 815, and there you're going to see a story within a story. And it's in the middle of the story that we're going to find Jesus in a way we haven't found him uh, before. As we do that, what I want you to see is three things. Uh, the question the confusion, and the power. The question, the confusion, and the power. First, the question. This disruption raises a question, and the question is, who is Jesus? Now, that's not a startling question for a person who's writing a biography of Jesus, so we're not surprised that Mark would put that in front of his readers right away with his first disruption story, who is Jesus? 
And if you want to see that question, then what you want to do is you want to notice the two stories. And just very quickly, the, the story A is in the first two verses. So 20 and 21 is story A. And then uh, story B starts there in verse 22. And then story A resumes at verse 31. It goes down four verses to 35. That, that's back to story A. And so if you look carefully, you see at the seams where the B disrupts in and then where B ends and it goes back to A, you're going to see a statement about Jesus. You're going to see somebody's answer to the question, who is Jesus? Okay, we, all have, we, all, we don't have to be a religious person to have an answer to the question, who is Jesus? We all have an answer to the question, who is Jesus? Okay, we all do. And it's not always the, the, a good answer. Okay, that's what we're seeing here. In, in verse 21, his family says he's gone out of his mind. He's crazy. That's their answer. That's what we, and then, then all of a sudden, B breaks in. And then coming out of B, uh, we see in verse 30, a different group of people called scribes, they say, he has an unclean spirit. Okay, that's their answer to the question, who is Jesus? He's evil. He's demon-possessed. And so th- this is the question uh, that uh, Mark is raising for you as a reader. Who is Jesus? Now, let me just familiarize with, this, with the two stories here. See, story A is a story about Jesus' family trying to get Jesus out of a house. That's A. And it, and it, and it goes like this. Jesus is in, he, he's up in Galilee. He's teaching, he's healing. He's got a ton of people pressing in on him. The people gathering from far and wide, bringing all their needs. It comes out of their disruptions, and they're laying him at the feet of Jesus. And it gets kind of crowded, and Jesus retreats to a house, and he's trapped inside of that house. Now, this has happened once before in Mark chapter 2. You see this at the beginning of the story. It's the end of verse 19, which says, then he went home. It actually, it would be a more rigid but better translation to say, uh, then he is going into a house. That's the way Mark phrases it. Then he, that's Jesus, is going into a house. Mark uses the dramatic present. It's, he's very action-oriented. So, then he's going into a house. You know, that's, that's what Mark is saying to his readers. Now, it's not his home because Jesus lives in Nazareth, which is 20 miles to the south. This is probably in, in Capernaum. That's where Mark has Jesus at this point. And it's probably the house of Andrew and Peter, their brothers. And Jesus has already been in that house before. They've taken the roof off, remember, because, again, they couldn't get through. And the same problem here. But unfortunately, Jesus has been there a long time. It's time to get some rest. It's time to get some food. And they can't even, can't even get food in there. And this is looking crazy. Like, you've got to take care of yourself, Jesus. And the word goes back to his, his family in Nazareth that things are looking pretty ugly for Jesus. And so they go to rescue Jesus from Jesus. Have you ever tried to do that? Jesus has just kind of lost control of this one, and so we need to come and help him. He's gone out of his mind. That's their answer to the question, who is he? He's, he's, he's crazy. So it's in the middle of that story that also Mark kind of seems to lose the train of thought, and he goes, let me tell you another story. Let me tell you a story about a group of people who are down in Jerusalem. This is story B. These are religious leaders that are very powerful. They're scribes, he calls them. And they're trying to maintain power under Roman occupation, these Jews. Uh, And they get word that there's someone up north who's doing some really weird stuff. He's, uh, He's helping people. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's teaching things that people call good news, but it's not what we teach. And so uh, they say, we've got to send a delegation up, probably the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, or the, or the temple leaders, the priests there. They send a delegation up to go and grab Jesus and to set this whole thing straight. So they go to the house to try to get Jesus out of the house. And then it goes back to the story of his family. But what we, uh, what we want to see before we move on here is that you and I have a question that's set before us, and that's who is Jesus. 
And I, and I think, you know, the first point is you want to become familiar with Jesus. That's what Mark wants. He wants you to become familiar with Jesus. That's the central thing. And that's why the whole gospel. Become familiar with Jesus. So what a great opportunity this summer to ask that question and to try to become more familiar with who he is. And, you know, that project is as relevant in Mark's day, the first century, uh, as it is today. I hope some of you have seen this interview that Bono did not long ago uh, in the Irish media. And uh, you may want to watch this clip in your, in your small group. I couldn't get uh, copyright permission fast enough to show it to you this morning. But I want to read to you an excerpt from this interview. Because Bono works with the same question that Mark works with, who is Jesus, in, in this thing. So the, the host is asking him, he's saying, uh, trying to get him into spiritual things a little bit. Because everybody knows Bono goes there from time to time. And the host says, I'm talking about God. And Bono says, oh, the person of Christ is my way to understand God. And the host says, so do you pray? Yes. To whom or what do you pray? Christ. And what do you pray for? I pray to get to know the will of God, because then the prayers have a greater chance of coming true. So who or what was Jesus, as far as you're concerned? Well, I think it's the defining question for a Christian. Who was Christ? I don't think you're let off easily by saying a great thinker or a great philosopher because actually he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why they crucified him. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. This is Bono. So either in my view, he was the Son of God or he was not. And he uses that Irish accent that confuses the interviewer at that point and who breaks in and says, you mean not? Either he is or he's not. No, no, he says, I mean nuts. N-U-T-S. <laughs> Forget rock and roll messianic complexes. This is like Charlie Manson type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. Bono says, I don't believe it. So therefore it follows, you believe he was divine. The interviewer says, Bono, yes. And therefore you believe that he physically rose from the dead. Bono, yes. And then he smiles and he says, I have no problem with miracles. I am surrounded by miracles. I am one. Who is Jesus? You can look at the claims of Jesus as presented to you in the Bible, and you can say, wow, I mean, he's crazy. Or you can say, well, he's, de he's deceitful. I mean, anybody who would claim to be the creator of time and space and in whom all things hold together and, have, and live and move and have their being, who's not God, would be crazy. Or anybody who believed that they were when they were not, would actually, and it's, who essentially said to everybody, said, you know, put your trust in me, who made promises he knew he couldn't keep, who asked people to count on him for their eternal destinies, but really couldn't fulfill those promises, he would be highly deceptive, the worst kind of blasphemous evil, right? So uh, Bono is saying, you know, pick your choice. You can go either direction, but you might be left where I'm left, which is exactly where Mark begins to say he's the son of God. He's the son of God. And if he is, we can become familiar with him. So 
this is an important question in general for anybody's life, but it's also a particularly important question when you're in the middle of a disruption because one of the trademarks of a disruption is disorientation. When things that were familiar don't look familiar anymore, and if you're a, a person of faith, even in my experience, people who are not people of faith, they tend to go to Jesus. But the question is, who is this Jesus you're going to? You know, because sometimes we have Jesus reduced to like a little bit of a formula. If I do X, he'll do Y. I did Z, and oh my gosh, I dropped off the face of the earth. Jesus, are you crazy? Jesus, are you trying to hurt me? So this is, you see, this is the question. Who, who is your Jesus? Who do you think he is in the midst of this crisis? So you're doing theological work. You're doing Christology in the context of your disruption this summer. Well, let's move on to the confusion. This is the second thing, because it's really the confusion that's the problem, not the disruption. It's the confusion that gets both his family and these scribes in trouble. For me, it was like the, it was the confusion also that sort of stopped me at the coffee shop with this person. I, I didn't know what to do. I felt out of control. And, and I, you know, I don't like that feeling of being out of control. And so I was constantly trying to regain control of conversation and put everything in its right place. You know, and I think I had that look on my face where, that your, your Garmin has when you're um, off the path that it's picked for you and it says recalculating, recalculating, you know. <laughs> I'm, wait a minute, I'm buffering, I'm buffering. It'll come, I'll, you know. But I'm feeling out of control here and I don't know what to do. I'm confused. And Jesus is confusing. And let's be honest about that. Jesus is confusing for all of us, believer and unbeliever alike. And it's what we do with that confusion when we're facing disruptions that matters. And so here's what is interesting is Mark very cleverly offers us two postures in this story. And it's a little hard to see in English, so bear with me. In verse 21, we have one posture, uh, and the other posture is verse 34. In verse 21, he uses, our English translators use the word family. When his family heard it, Mark does not use any word that remotely resembles family there. That's an interpretation because later on his brothers and sisters show up, and so the translator has told you this is probably Jesus' family. But the word that Mark uses is those beside Jesus. He identifies them by their posture towards Jesus, not by their blood relation. Those who were beside Jesus. In the, if you want, if you're a, a, a Bible geek like me, you want to know the preposition there. It's, it's para in the Greek. It's para, which is the word from which we get our parallel. It's something that's beside something. Two parallel lines will go on for infinity and never connect. And, and Jesus' family, they're like that. They're, they're beside him, but they may go on for infinity and never connect. That's one posture when you're confused. The other posture is down in verse 34, and it's de- depicted by a different preposition. This one is the pe- preposition peri, which means around, like perimeter, perimeter. It describes a circle. And so, in fact, we do have a circle inside the house. We're able to look inside, the narrator lets, and we see in there a group of people who are not his blood relatives, but who are followers of Jesus sitting around him. Uh, and uh, they're sitting around him. In fact, Mark throws in an extra word to make sure you get it there, and it's an adverb. It's circling, and I wish our, our translations had that. They were sitting, circling around Jesus, another posture. Okay? It's a very different posture. This is a posture where Jesus is at the center, and my life could go around and around, but it's going to always go around Jesus. It's the center that defines the perimeter. And so this is important. When you find yourself disrupted and life comes along and 
you know, there's something you didn't expect, and whether you'll welcome it or not, there's an opportunity for you to consider, what's my posture towards Jesus in this? This is where the question, who is Jesus, slams into our own life experiences of disruption. And you can have a Jesus at your side, which is really like convenient, especially when we like to stay in control. Because the beauty of walking through the wilderness of life with Jesus at your side is when you hit something hard, you can always pull away, right? You can always say, Jesus, you take this. I'll meet you on the other side. <laughs> you know, Jesus, I actually want to go through this with you, George. No, no, no. You know, I, this is kind of a messy season of my life. I'll catch you on the, you know, when you're, when you're done with this, I'll catch you. Or we see something in the Bible and we go, boy, I wish that were in the Bible. And I say that all the time. Boy, I wish that were in the Bible. And I don't understand it. We can just pull away. And that's what these people who are beside his family, that's what they're doing. They're trying to control the situation themselves. In fact, the language that Mark uses for them is the same language that Mark uses in the rest of the gospel for Jesus' opponents. They're trying to seize Jesus, Mark says. They're seeking Jesus at the end. Both of those terms are used for Jesus' opponents everywhere else in the gospel. He's saying, be careful. You may think you're part of Jesus' family, but if your life and his life, those two paths, do not connect. If your story and his story go parallel onto in, into eternity, then don't think, don't think you have a meaningful relationship with Jesus. You just have a Jesus beside you. It's convenient, but it doesn't really help you. It's like having a Jesus in your pocket. He's not big enough. But a Jesus at our center, a Jesus, you know, one of the ways, by the way, we try to uh, control something is to explain it. If you, have, if you could explain something, you go, I, that's the beginning of trying to control it. And, and so to these folks who sit around in a circle, I think they've given up trying to explain Jesus. I don't think they understand Jesus any more than his family or the scribes. But what they've done is they've taken a different posture. They say, I don't get this guy. I don't get his teaching. I don't get what he's doing in my life. But I know the right posture. I know the best thing for me is to join the circle and let him be at the center. Because I know his character. And I can trust his character when I don't understand his ways. See that? That's a very different kind of posture. It's the posture of a student to a teacher. That's what, uh, in that day, students would sit the teacher, uh, the teacher's feet. And so they're saying, in essence, Jesus, I don't get this, but I want you to teach me. Jesus, I don't understand how this is happening, but I, I want to live with the unanswered questions. I, I know I can't fit that verse into my paradigm, but rather than try to change the verse, I'm willing to let you change my paradigm. See that? That's, that's sitting at the feet of the greatest teacher that ever lived. And it's allowing him to do what he'll always do, which is retain the right to mystery. Don't reduce him. So if the, if the first point is to become familiar with Jesus, the second point here is to sit with what's unfamiliar, to sit with it. I, I was reading an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education. And I, you know, I, my favorite part of any magazine is usually the letters to the editor. I like cranky people. And so there was a, some professor was objecting to an article in the previous month or week about uh, theism. And he wrote this, and I kind of liked it, so let me just read it to you. This, to me, I think this is somebody who's sitting in the circle uh, with Jesus as a center. He says, do I question God? Always. Am I sometimes angry at God? Of course. But should I be angry at God because he does not run the universe the way I see fit? Well, then he would not be God. I would. So misotheism, which is a phrase that comes up in the article, misotheism, hating God, is really self-theism, being God. Why would a, and then he raises a question, it was a common objection, why would a loving God give people free will to mess things up? 
Well, he says, let me answer this question. Have you ever been in a relationship with someone who imposed his will on you all the time? Doesn't feel like a very loving relationship for very long. What's he saying? He's saying, I don't, I don't understand God. I don't understand my life all the time. But this thing I know, God loves us. And when he loves you, he holds you f- with freedom. He, he doesn't impose his will. He doesn't control you. And when you love him, you won't try to control him either. You'll live with a mystery. You'll live with, you sit with what's unfamiliar. Okay, third thing, we've looked, we looked at the question and the confusion, and now the power. And here's the gospel. Jesus interprets himself in the disruption. The disruption, the story within the story, what I'm calling story B, is a, 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 is a collection of parables, little stories. And the parable at the center of them is the parable of the strong man. And Jesus, remember, he's sitting inside of a house, and everyone's trying to get him out of the house. And Jesus tells the story, let me ask you, if you go into a strong man's house and you want to get stuff out of the house, would you try to do it without tying up the strong man? No. And really what he's doing in offering that is he's giving them a a metaphor for what God in Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, is doing in the world today. He is entering into a family to bind a strong man and to set a family free. That's what he's doing. The word house can refer to a physical house, but it can also refer to a biological house. It can refer to like a family, the house, the offspring of, of Jacob is the house of Jacob. And so the scriptures say in Romans 8, 29, Jesus is the firstborn within a long, large family. He, God became born into the human lineage in order to make us his family, to be the, the elder brother to a, a new creation. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's what I'm doing here. I'm stronger than the strong man. You can trust me because I'm here to get you out of, of this house that's where, the, where you've been intimidated and trapped and tied up by the strong man. That's my mission. And so if you want to see what Jesus asks us to do with respect to his power, he says, you pay attention to my will. That's how the story ends, right? In verse 35. Let me tell you who my mother and brothers are. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and my mother. If you know you can trust me, then you can let my will. I invite you to engage with my will. The way I say this is focus on Jesus and follow. Focus on Jesus and follow. And I use that word focus intentionally because when you're looking through the lens of a camera, the thing that is the focal point puts everything else in perspective. You focus on the thing that puts everything else in perspective. And it's to, that's to put Jesus, he's already at the center, but, but it's easy not to focus on him. It's easy to focus on something else that we think is more important. And no, no, Mark's saying, no, you focus on Jesus. Bring him into focus, and everything else becomes clarified. Focus on him and follow. This reminds me of a story I read in the New York Times last week. I don't know if any of you saw this thing about a firefighter. And they talk about a firefighter's first fire. Apparently, a lot of these firefighters get ribbed until they've actually experienced a real fire. They got the cat out of the tree. There was a story about the police, a fireman who got a, a policeman out of a tree who was trying to get a cat out of the tree. And, you know, and that's fine, and they appreciate that fires are really dangerous, and you don't necessarily want to be in harm's way. But, you, you know, you became a firefighter to fight fires, and you really want your first fire. And so there's a story about this one guy, and it's been like months. I think it was nine months or more, and he'd never been in a real fire. And so they follow this guy around until he actually had a real fire. And the day comes, and he's in New York City, and 
this big apartment. And, you know, he's excited, but he's also nervous, and smoke is billowing out. And they've been told there are kids inside of this thing, which is horrifying. And so his, uh, his chief says, I want to pair you up with this guy. This guy's a veteran. He's been in the burning house before. So he said, I have two things for you. I want you to put your hand on his back, and you never let it go. And then your other hand always follows a wall. So he says, basically, here's my will for you. Here's my will for you. You, 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 you. you focus on the guy in front of you. Don't ever let him leave you. And then you run your hand along the wall, and he is going to get you out of that house. He's going to rescue you as you go in to rescue someone else. It's a great story. The guy goes in. It's, you can't see anything. He stumbles across a baby and brings a baby out. His first fire. He saved somebody's life. And you see, that's what Jesus is saying. Look, I, you, you make me the focal point of your life. I'm going to get you out of the thing that binds you. I'm also going to make you an agent. You're going to bring other people with you. Because that's what I do. I'm getting people out of the house. And so Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good for those who love God. Disruptions can be very good. And I think you probably all remember Steve Jobs, who, who was fired from Apple Computer and, and a few years ago at Stanford University. He said, Worst disruption of my life, best thing that ever happened to me. Led me to the most creative season of my career. It's getting fired from the company that I founded. And you know what? That's what Jesus does in our lives. That's what he'll do. And let me just quickly tell you four things that can happen uh, for you in your disruptions. Rescue, redirection, renewal, and and refinement. The Israelites were disrupted by plagues, but God rescued them in the midst of that. The Apostle Paul had a plan to go to Asia, but God redirected him through a disruption. The Apostle Paul struggled with uh, distress and depression and despair, and the Holy Spirit renewed him through that crisis as it it taught him to put his trust in, in nothing but the resurrection power of Jesus. And then Peter, looking at the fiery trials of the followers of Jesus in Asia Minor, told them that this could be how God refines them in this disruption. God can refine. He can forge your eternal character. It gets you ready for heaven. All of those things are good things that the power of Jesus can do in our lives in the midst of our disruptions. So let me just close by saying, how do you handle your disruptions? Do you handle them by trying to knuckle down, double down on your will and force it? And if you're, if you're a believing person or a spiritual person, try to compel Jesus? Or do you sit before him? Do you allow him to center you in him? Do you ask him, what's your will, Jesus? Jesus, this is an unfamiliar world, but you're a familiar person to me. I live with the unfamiliar parts, but I invite you to be the center and to redraw my world in this unfamiliarity. What's it going to look like? What's your will for my work in this new situation that's developing? What's your will for my family and how the dynamics are changing in uncomfortable ways? What's your will for these relationships, the one that I just lost and the new person that I'm... And what's your will for my finances and how I use... Jesus says, you focus on me and then follow I want to close with a poem written by one of our members uh, who's actually sang in the choir in the last service, so you can know that he survived. He's still wrestling with his health, but 12 years ago, uh, he had that diagnosis that some of you had, that it's cancer, and it's just the most devastating disruption you could imagine, and many people don't survive it physically or spiritually. And uh, Rich Verver is his name, and he did, 
And, um, it, but it changed his life in wonderful ways, even through all the trauma of it. And he, he wrote a book of poems uh, and published it, Unexpected Interruptions. And I just want to close with one of his poems. And maybe you can find yourself somewhere in this disorientation. This is called A New Path. Where is the me that used to be? That child, that youth, that man? Where's the life I used to live? The feel, the task, the plan. Where's the day I used to greet the dawn, the noon, the dusk? Where is it gone? The child, the feel, the man, the youth, the task, the plan, the dawn, the noon, the dusk. Where have they gone? My hopes, my dreams, my desire. Where is the me that used to be? I search at dawn's first light. I search at noon's high sun. I search at dusk's soft dimming. Somehow all has been altered by life's surprise, by life's unexpected, by life's wry humor. Somehow a new path has been laid, a new child, youth, and man, a new feel and task and plan, a new dawn, noon, and dusk. Now come new hopes, new dreams, new desires from one who holds the future. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we don't know the future. We hardly even know the present. But we're coming to know you because you have revealed the heart of God. And so we pray in the midst of our disruptions and as we learn about disruptions this summer that you'll teach each and every one of us what it means to reach out our hand, to take your hand, and let you walk us through the fire trials of life. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.